Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Matthew Skelton, the author of the book Team Topologies, and we discuss how to build teams focused on a fast flow of change, the impact that team structure has on digital transformation, and how to create lasting change in an organization with incremental improvements over time. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hi. How are you, my friend? Hi, Joe. Well, thank you. You? Good, good. You excited? We're going to do a podcast. That's great. Do you have a copy of your book with you? Well, I've got a million copies. It depends whether one's on my desk. It's <laughs> a hand, but yeah, it's just here. Cool. How many editions do you have so far? Just the first one? It's just the first edition. It's only, it's only been a year. Um, so normally a second edition would take another couple of years or something to come out. Um, but we've gone into second printing. Ooh, that's a good sign. We shifted 15,000 copies in, in the first year, and so they've just printed another 10,000. So that's good. Did you go with a publisher or self-publish? No, this is IT Revolution. So who, who run, uh, so who publish? It's Gene Kim's, um, Gene Kim's outfit. So they publish, you know, Phoenix Project and uh, DevOps Handbook and Accelerate and these books. So it's part of that family. Oh, that's like the best family you could be a part of. It's really good. I mean, the, the, the titles are all curated, so they all fit really well together. Did, did they approach you or did, how did you meet them? It was a kind of combination because we've been kind of circling around in the same space for a while. And then we had Gene and I were emailing a little bit. And then he invited me to speak at DevOps Enterprise Summit in London, 2017. And then on the back of that, we were looking around for a publisher and we thought, well, why not just try it? Well, what, what can go wrong? They can always, they can only say no and they might say yes. So we went, we went for it and it was a perfect fit. So it was, uh, it was really good. Oh, nice. How long, how long does it take to working? Like I did a book, but I self-published, but from like working with a publisher, how long did the process take? Uh, it took about 18 months because it's about six months worth of negotiation and, and kind of getting the, getting everything lined up. Uh, and also they got to slot you into their schedule because certainly pre-pandemic, everything was lined up against, I think, two or three book fairs, physical book fairs, one in Frankfurt, one in, I can't remember, there's one in the US somewhere and one somewhere else. And basically everything was arranged around that. I don't know how it works now because obviously no one's really meeting in public. Um, but anyway, we were, we started writing just over a year before the book was published. So we were writing for about six months and then there was six months worth of publishing and, and reviewing and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then it came out in the September. Oh, and who was who your co-author on it? So it's Manuel Paish. So he's the one that I, a colleague, been working with him since 2015. Um, we started working together on, on, well, actually he interviewed me for InfoQ magazine, for InfoQ website, about the, the original DevOps topologies website. Uh, that I put together and then we worked more on that. And then he started working with us on some client consulting gigs, mostly around build and, build and deployment, continuous delivery, kind of infrastructure automation, that kind of thing. And then we branched out into, into other, other areas, you know, team-based, team responsibilities and that kind of thing. Kind of came naturally out of the work that we're doing. 
So were you already doing consulting work and then you were like seeing these patterns or exactly. did you, yes, that's what happened. Exactly. Um, and we could, we could read what other people were saying and, and, and what other people's experience was uh, and relate that to our own consulting work. So it came out of, a, it came out of working directly with people. A lot, of the, a lot of the more kind of humanistic stuff in the book comes out of actually experiencing the kind of frustration and confusion that, that, we, that we saw people having inside organizations, not knowing what the team boundary was there, why they were having to interact with this other team, all this kind of stuff. So a lot, a lot of that aspect of it was it came out of directly kind of sitting down and working with people and seeing, listening to what they were saying and seeing their kind of confusion and frustration. And what was like the most common one? Well, one of the most common things that we wanted to address in part of the book was people often didn't seem to have a strong uh, sense of the remit of their team, what their team was supposed to do. And they also didn't have, in combination, they didn't have a, a, a strong sense of many, um, on many occasions, they didn't have a strong sense of why they were having to work with this other team. And so we wanted to codify some of those aspects uh, in the book to make it much clearer, to give some kind of patterns and some, some a mental picture of, you know, good ways in which teams could work together or, or not work together and bad ways in which teams might be interacting. And just to give a bit of a, a bit of clarity around that. And that seems to have been really useful. There's, there's been some very good comments about from lots of different organizations saying actually the, the kind of patterns and, and different team types and interaction modes seem to be really useful for a, a, a much more, a much more fruitful conversation about purpose and uh, intent of work inside, uh, inside, certainly inside an IT organization for sure, actually outside IT as well, it seems to be useful. So these, these let's like stick with the IT stuff because that's where, <laughs> that's where I have experience. Sure. So you were saying that, um, and like, correct me if I'm wrong. So one of the most common things that you saw people were frustrated about were teams were working together with other teams and they weren't clear on the vision or the purpose or why they were working together. Yeah, that's right. That's one of the things. And if you think about it, if you've ever been in a situation where you, you've been asked to work together with another team, that can sometimes be very rewarding, can really work well. Sometimes it can be very frustrating. Uh, and often that's because the the uh, the boundaries are not really well thought out, and the intent of that working together, that collaboration, is, is not really specified, and it kind of just drifts into an ongoing kind of oh, it's really painful to work with this other team, rather than rather than using that pain as a signal, which says, okay, this collaboration is not working. Why is it not working? Have we got the boundaries wrong? Have we got have we got insufficient capability inside one or both teams, or should we actually now? Be expecting to, to provide or consume something across a kind of API boundary at this point. And so st starting to think about how team interactions relate to the software architecture because of Conway's law and so on, mirror, socio-technical mirroring. So actually it becomes returning awkward team interactions into signals to tell us something about the organization, capabilities, architecture, boundaries, flow, this kind of thing. So it becomes much more powerful if we've got this language and this, this stuff in our head. It's not, not particularly complicated, but it, it just means that we, we potentially avoid quite a lot of frustration and, and stagnation by actually then turning that kind of inside out and saying, this is telling, something, telling us something important about 
something about the organization. So let's do something about it. Yeah, no, that that is, yeah. I, I was, when I heard about your book first, I was giving a talk and people were asking me, I guess at the talk, this is like pre-COVID, people were asking me about team structures. They're saying, oh, you know, my team structured this way. And then we hear about like, you know, Netflix has their team structured this way and Spotify has their team and they have all these, you know, nice words and, you know, structures around how they do it. And they were saying like, what's the perfect structure? Like, how do you do it? And I was talking with them about the structure of the team relating to the need of the business. And that was like the, the, the shortest summary of my answer was paying attention to what the needs are like in the marketplace. And then that will create the needs of structure for your team. And someone mentioned after that, they're like, oh yeah, that, that reminds me of the team topologies. It's like my favorite book. And like, have you read that? And I was like, no, I haven't. And so then I went and, and got it and I was like, oh, this is you or like, <laughs> super in tune with with teams and understanding the structures and it's way there's a lot more nuance but my question is like when people ask you like what's the perfect way to structure your team how do you answer that when you're giving talks the perfect way to structure an organization to deliver software is one that is adaptable and that evolves and therefore there is no one diagram that will capture that our book is, starts from the premise of needing a fast flow of change. If your organization does not need a fast flow of change, then a lot of the stuff in the book is not going to be relevant. There is some stuff which is going to be relevant for sure. But if, if you're not interested in a fast flow of change, then that's fine. You, you, you'll, you'll look at some other, some other book to tell you. But to be honest, these days, anyone building software systems, if you're not moving quickly, if you don't have a fast flow of change, you, you'll probably be out of business very quickly. Um, so certainly for most IT organizations, um, we're expecting a fast flow of change. So that's our starting point. So for a fast flow of change, what we want is no handoffs, no handoffs at all between uh, you know, writing the code or committing the code to, product, uh, to, to version control and then flowing that code down to production. We want no handoffs at all. So if we have no handoffs, we need um, a mix of skills inside the team with all kinds of different capabilities. It varies depending on what we're trying to achieve. But typically that involves people who can write code, people who can test code, people who understand infrastructure and metrics, people who understand kind of product management and so on. So there's a mix of skills. Um, there's an upper bound on the size of a team. And this, this is just social anthropology and so on. This is something we've, we've inherited as, as human beings from millions of years of evolution. It's about eight people. Some organizations can actually run with groups of about up to 15 that, that sort of work still quite closely together. But beyond about 15, there's a kind of trust boundary, which means that you can't move as quickly. And so if you want to optimize for a nice fast flow of change, you have to limit the size of these, of these groups, these teams. And then there's a, there's a limit on the cognitive load inside that team because you can't keep adding people and retain a fast flow. So there's also there, therefore limits to the size of the system that a team like that can actually understand and properly own. And so that immediately starts to then have an effect on the kind of software architectures that we're likely to build. It sort of implies a head moving towards loosely coupled, independent, smallish services or applications. It might not be called microservices because that's coming at it from a very technical angle, but, but it, it shares some concepts from, from, from the kind of microservices world. And then, so you've got multiple loosely coupled independent teams matching their architecture and loosely coupled applications and services. But then we need some other kind of teams to kind of support that 
because we've got a limit on the cognitive load that we can take on. We can't build the entire stack. At some point, there's, there's, a, there's a layer below which that team is not going to be able to deal with. It might be, and, and it depends what you're working on, but at some point you'll, you'll hit a level, which it, this is too complicated. We don't have enough time to, to, to deal with you know, infrastructure or networks or hardware or firmware or um, you know, uh, electronics. Or so you'll, you'll hit a layer at some point, which, which is, okay, we need to define this as our platform. On which, on which we build. So then you have a platform underneath of some description. So the, so the, the, perfect, the perfect team structure, it depends on the context, but if you're looking for fast flow of change, you need to minimize handoffs. And therefore, any, and if you've got multiple streams of change, you need to make sure those different teams are loosely coupled, just like the architecture will be. So that, that points to something that's kind of an ideal, if you like, I wouldn't call it perfect, but it points to kind of um, an ideal that, that's, that's derived from these principles that we've just talked about in terms of fast flow and, and cognitive load and, and the size of teams and that kind of thing. I love the cognitive load concept because it's something that, you know, the moment you say it, you just, as a human, you instinctively know that that's true and you you kind of build this map in your mind of how that works. And so this concept of you know the number of the maximum number of people and mixing in our anthropology that's that's pretty smart can you help me better understand when you're saying fast flow of change that's like means like quick changes like you like to deliver like is that what we're talking about with fast flow of change yeah so if, if we the fast flow of change may come from lots of different places we're, we're, we're innovating very quickly or we we need uh, multiple um, new features to be launched, or we need to fix bugs very quickly, or we need to be able to respond to security incidents like zero day vulnerabilities, this kind of thing. We need to be able to understand what we need to build or change in the software, and we need to be able to deliver that very quickly. Um, so obviously underneath, we've got lots of tooling like continuous delivery, deployment pipelines, that kind of thing, infrastructure automation, a whole lot of good practices like test-driven development and so on. All of that, to be honest, a lot of that stuff in our book is just taken as a given because that really is a is really is table stakes in in 2020. I mean, there's loads of organisations who aren't doing it, but uh, all those kind of engineering practices are, are really kind of you've got to have those in place. But yeah, we're talking about being able to respond quickly to business needs or customer needs, depending on your on your on how you see uh, your, on your starting point. But to be able to make um, certainly make software changes changes to our software systems very rapidly and flow those changes down towards production and have them running and working in production and meeting user needs as rapidly as possible with, with the shortest lead time as possible. And then can you, that was a really good explanation. And I'm just trying, by the way, I'm just trying to like wrap my head around some of these things to make sure that like we're on the same page. And can you give me like a description of what you meant by like, you want to minimize handoff? Like what's a handoff? That's a good question. Um, so handoff, traditionally, we might have had uh, separate teams for, let's say, development and then testing and then release, and then we're operating it in, in the live environment. So there you've got four different teams, dev, test, release, and, and operations. And between each of those teams, there's, there's a handoff. So dev hands that work off to test, test hands it to release, release hands it to operations. So that at each one of those points is a handoff. And what we're trying to do is remove those handoffs. So because in any kind of any kind of flow-based system as soon as you have a handoff in place it severely limits the ability of, of, of that work to 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 be to be moved rapidly towards the, the destination so that's why we're removing these um what some people call silos these separate groups and we've got an obsession with making sure there's none of these handoffs in 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 the kind of the flow of change from 
from, from the request to make that change through to it being in, in the live environment. That's a single team that owns that entire kind of journey of change. And, and, it's, and, and it strongly affects the kind of architecture and things that we'd want to build. I, I mean, I fully agree. To be honest with you, like I've never worked in a team that was siloed. So me personally, um, just I guess the nature of, of my experience, but I could imagine, you know, when I hear people, I've got friends that work at all different sizes companies. And when I hear the uh, the amount of red tape that sometimes exists in, in their flow, I really am like, how do they get anything done? Right. <laughs> but the teams that can structure like that, I mean, that just, I think what happened is there was like an older way of doing things and I just missed out on that. And because I started with a small team, just being a software developer and then building, adding engineers around me, I just did it in a way that I thought was like most efficient and logical. Yeah. And I mean, there were some sort of good ways, good reasons for, for lots of handoffs in the past, arguably the technologies of the time of the 1990s were not as programmable as they are now. I mean, some of that stuff existed, but but there wasn't this kind of API first approach to 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 lots of software and, and particularly to infrastructure. I mean, now if you think about cloud infrastructure, it's all programmable. Programmable. There's APIs for Amazon and for Azure and Google Cloud and whatever. This stuff is software, effectively, or at least there's a software paradigm used to create things and, and interact with infrastructure, on all the way down to networking and, and all sorts of other things these days. So certainly, a lot of stuff has been made easier through infrastructure automation. Um, but also in the past, there was not, there wasn't such fierce competition in terms of getting things to market so quickly. Things were packaged on CD-ROM, so there was always a kind of production delay. Whereas now you can ship new features into production multiple times a day into your live environment if you're running a SaaS product. So the the sort of nature of products has also changed in the last sort of certainly the last fifteen years, but arguably shorter than that, kind of certainly the last ten years. Um, and so that's that's really accelerated, or that's that's increased the need for to be able to deliver things rapidly. And so that's that's then it's 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 causing organisations with these handoffs in place to seem very very sluggish. And so the organisations with no handoffs at all for different parts of their systems are, are, are way out ahead in terms of speed, very much very much quicker, and able to respond much more rapidly and kind of nimbly to different market conditions or to you know, pandemics, be able to change how they do things and, 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 and build new features or, or capabilities into the software very, very quickly. That's actually a really interesting take on it because, you know, one, one topic I get to talk with a lot of different people about is digital transformation. And this is the first time I've connected team topologies, team structures to having a massive impact, at least a perceived impact on digital transformation. So it's, it's an interesting point. So we, we're doing quite a lot of work with lots of different organizations, different parts of the world at the moment. Um, it's a bit of a nightmare for my, for my uh, calendar, trying to work out which time zone I'm in when I'm talking to a client. But anyway, that's, that's, um, that's a separate challenge. Um, what, what, what's interesting about, what seems to be interesting and, and, and valuable about team topologies, talking to our clients and talking to other people who've used it, is it's not simply a restructuring. It's not just another organization design. Because of the principles that we've got in the book, and, and there's, there's a whole, whole host of them, it's helping organizations to rethink their, uh, at least rethink their technology strategy, but also in many cases actually help to rethink their business strategy or help, help to think how well technology aligns to their business strategy and, and pushing out into kind of 
into business subject matter experts and trying to get more clarity about um, the, the key aspects of the business domain, for example, because we want to align teams typically to, to slices or segments of the business domain. And so then having that conversation actually makes IT more responsive because we better understand what the business domain is. And we're now going to align our teams to those things. And so suddenly we're able to actually, we've, we've reset our thinking and we've, we've, we're now thinking in additional dimensions, if you like, about cognitive load, about flow, about the, these other things. And we're now able to much better serve kind of the needs of the organization in terms of technology delivery. It's not just a kind of new team structure or organization design. It's, it's this rethinking about how technology can serve, uh, can, can meet the business need, can serve the business need, because we've got the, we're thinking about these other things as well. That seems to be a key part of why it's valuable. Yeah, one of my favorite books back here is uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, and it sounds like you've got some some pretty great principles inside of Team Topologies. Like, I get it. It's not like an instruction, like step-by-step, step, here's how to organize the team. But it's it includes a lot of these principles. And I think just the beginning, what you said about optimizing for fast flow, reducing handoff, that right there is like, it's just well said. It's just, it's just a, a valuable piece of the puzzle. Now, for you personally, as as one of the authors, what was your like favorite chapter in the book? That's a good question. Yeah, feel uh, free to open up the index. <laughs> I would need to do the same thing with my book. <laughs> um, that is a really interesting question. I think, I think the chapter which actually ends up. I think the chapter which is probably most well certainly part three of the book has has the 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 content which is probably most novel and probably chapter seven where we're talking about the team interaction modes is 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 the one which i think is uh, out of any of the chapters probably helped the most actually the 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 cognitive load aspect the, the chapters on cognitive load um have definitely helped a lot of people but the but the but we didn't invent cognitive load or, or the concept of team cognitive load. That, that's, that's already out there. The team interaction mode is something that we did put together that, that was new um, and seems to have really helped. There's a really interesting uh, case study that we came across from a company in a retailer in the UK. And they actually said that um, the product managers really valued the team interaction modes because it actually helped them to plan out their product roadmap and make sure they were lining up the teams at the right point in time so they could deliver stuff and set the expectation from the teams that these things were going to happen and it was going to feel like this. It's going to feel like you're switching from collaboration to consuming something as a service. And so it actually helped the teams to, you're setting some expectations beforehand. And that was a really interesting take that actually the product managers found some aspects of, of the book that are actually super helpful for them to 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 manage the multiple different product streams so I, I, at the moment that's that that's that chapter is my i guess probably my favorite in, in a few months it might be different we'll see <laughs> <laughs> so that was chapter seven team interaction modes is that what is that what you said it's chapter it's chapter seven on team interaction modes yeah nice so i was reading that I'm one of the chapters about four different types of teams, like complicated subsystem, enabling, platform, stream aligned. Can you like break those down for me a little bit? Yeah, so our starting point is a stream aligned team. This is the the, the, the cross-functional team that has end-to-end responsibility for delivery of a, of a flow of change for one particular part of the business domain usually. Uh, so we use 
techniques like domain-driven design and similar things to identify these boundaries for these teams. But once we've got those in place, that team will, it will be substantially autonomous. We'll be able to deliver changes basically by itself. They will have dependencies on other things like infrastructure and, and um, marketing platforms and stuff like this, but there won't be any, they won't need to wait on anyone to do something as they're making that change flow towards production because they're just consuming APIs. So that's our starting point. And if, if you can get by in your organization, if you can survive with only these streamlined teams in place, then that's, that's, that's a really good, really good situation. Typically speaking, once you get to a certain size, like who knows, 30, 50 technologists inside the organization, typically that's when you'd start to expect a, some sort of platform to emerge just because there's many, many commonalities and, and, and these teams would have, would end up duplicating a whole load of stuff, which, which would be better served by being kind of carefully curated and managed as a product in the, in the platform. And certainly as you get to that kind of size, it's useful to have some experts who end up kind of enabling some of these streamlined teams to do some more specialist things like adopt a new uh, technology or uh, move upgrade from one technology to another or to learn how to use a new technique something like this it might be around data privacy for example which is not you know it's a quite specialist thing or something about credit card payments whatever so something that's kind of specialist and so you typically have this this one or more enabling teams helping uh, on a time limited basis helping the streamlined teams to kind of do something over a fixed period of time and then and then we've got a complicated subsystem team type, which is only really necessary if you have some really complicated processing that's happening in part of the system, like complicated maths or um, you know vector matrix type calculations going on. Generally speaking, if you can avoid having a complicated subsystem, then you should avoid it. But really, the, these three supporting team types—the enabling team, the complicated subsystem team, and the platform team—their primary foc- their primary purpose is to reduce cognitive load on the streamlined team. That is really the starting point for those kind of other, other three kind of teams. If they are not reducing cognitive load on the streamlined teams, then they're not fulfilling their purpose. There are some secondary things that these, these other kind of teams can provide, but our starting point is the lens, if you like, through which we look, is the starting point is that these other three team types, the primary thing they do should be reduce cognitive load on the streamlined teams. Uh, they shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be adding cognitive load by making it difficult to integrate with the platform, for example, which is the often the case from platforms of the past, right? <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, so like when your customers, how are they finding you? Like what's the, what's the problem they're experiencing and what's their life like when, when they decide they need, because like for some background, do you have this book and it helped your consulting business? Now your consulting business is growing. You help companies do this, structured teams. But you know, what causes your customers to like make that call and reach out to you? Good question. So we do a lot of speaking lots of different events. So I guess we, we end up being quite well known through that. The, the publishers IT Revolution uh, are very, very good uh, at um, what they do. Um, amazing editors, amazing pub- publicity people and so on. And so word gets round and um, they do things like, you know, online massive, massive scale AM, uh, Ask Me Anything sessions, AMAs, and all kind of articles and stuff like this. So that we, we, we've, we've been helped a huge amount through IT Revolution. But both Manuel and I have got a background in uh, hands-on software engineering. And um, before, so we've been talking about, well, the previous, the patterns that are the precursor to team topologies called DevOps topologies. We've been talking about those since uh, 2013. 
and so what's that seven years now and between that time and and now we were both speaking about kind of engineering practices as well so we were inside organizations doing stuff like automation and deployment pipeline creation and looking at kind of team boundaries and looking at team practices and things and i think that's a, a key a key aspect of why people like to come to us we're, we're, we're coming at this um, kind of organization dynamics space from the perspective of really being in the middle of building and running software systems. Uh, we're not coming at it from an organization design or an HR viewpoint or a management viewpoint. We're coming at it from a, from a strongly technical background. And I think that really helps. We deliberately use some of that kind of terminology in the book. Like we talk about a team API, which is so API application programming interface. So that's how obviously how we describe kind of a, uh, uh, how we interact with a, a bit of software. And we've taken that term and, and made it into something which sounds much more relating to humans. And that's deliberate because we're trying to bring that terminology into how we think about teams and think about the organization. So, I th- I th- and, and certainly this combination of, of awareness around, uh, strong awareness around software engineering and delivery practices, operations practices as well, and kind of telemetry and metrics and, and infrastructure. And also then, awareness of um, the kind of socio-technical aspects, software development delivery that we talk about in the Team Topologies book. I think it's just this, this combination seems to be very valuable because without, without the strong technical background, just talking about kind of how you arrange teams feels potentially a little bit empty. So it, 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 certainly in many, many cases, what we end up doing for our clients is working on the, on the, the shape and responsibility of teams and the dynamics between teams and also working on um, kind of technical foundations as well. What, what's like, t- sorry. No, go for it. Oh, I was uh, curious what, what the size is. Like what's the, the size of your normal customers like when they're reaching out to you? The whole, whole host of sizes, anything from around about kind of 40, 50 people, smallish through to some of our customers have got uh, kind of 10,000 uh, employees, so quite large. I don't have the revenue figures off the top of my head, but I mean, you can you can you can extrapolate yeah. from that from 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 low millions to to into billions uh, is is what so quite a range, and of, obviously we we're, we're often just working in one area of, of a larger organisation, typically as a pilot, and then we and we often look to try and uh, expand that out into into other parts of that same organisation. There's only such a there's only a particular you can't try and tackle too much at the same time effectively. As a, yeah. key, a key aspect of the team topologies kind of approach is we're not trying to do a big bang, a big bang change. We're trying to do an incremental evolutionary change because that's, that's how we instill the, the right kind of thinking and, and, um, and kind of principles into the organization to help it evolve into the future. It's not just a one-off, hey, one big change and we're done. It's, no, it's much more about let's embed the principles so that we're always thinking about changing the shape of the organization to, to meet the internal and external um, kind of business context. I'm glad you clarified that because at the beginning of the interview, when we were talking, we fast, the way that you were using fast, fast flow change to me using companies that want this. I, for some reason, my brain was connecting that to like, if you want change right now and you want massive organizational change, read, the, read this book. <laughs> Mm. so so that's not not the case we want we want small fast that's why i had you clarify like in my follow-up mm. what fast flow changes were and i think some of the other listeners are probably on that path too so 
So you want small incremental evolutionary style changes within a, like a subset of the organization and then expand that out if it's like a larger one or if it's a smaller one, they only have like 30 or 40 people just begin implementing the principles. Is that accurate? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're certainly, I mean, anyone who's offering to change an organization very, very rapidly in a short space of time is either a magician or selling snake oil or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and it's, yeah, the approach is very much not about kind of one massive change that, 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 that big bang approach, it can work in some very, very specific context, but it needs really strong, you know, um, CEO level buy-in and, um, that kind of, uh, that kind of urgency of vision and, and execution right from the top. When we're talking about something which is a bit more normal, if you like a normal situation, then, you know, we, 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 we anyway need to help organizations to be, whether you use team topologies or whether you use something else, I mean, organizations need to be able to change on an ongoing basis. The idea of a big reorg every three or five years is just crippling so many organizations because it doesn't take into account a huge number of the different dimensions that need to be thought about. And so if, by adopting something like team topologies or a similar kind of evolutionary incremental approach, that kind of listening for change and adapting the organization to these changing circumstances just becomes part of what the organization does. It's a much more sustainable approach. It's, it's much less destructive. Yeah. So, so when, when we were talking earlier about, you know, oh, should we do pods or tribes? You sort of, you know, bring up this concept of, you know, what terminology do you have? I'm, ju- I'm just trying to think about in the future how I'm going to redirect people to team topologies after having spoken with you because you know this is just uh for me it's it's very exciting to have this conversation right because i'm learning learning a whole lot but yeah redirecting them i think the most powerful thing that you've done is created a framework for language like you put words Mm -hmm. to the organizations that existed within a company but people couldn't articulate them and with this new language you can now look at your existing organization with fresh eyes and better understand your team's bottlenecks, low-hanging fruit for optimization. This is certainly what a lot of people say. They, they really value the, the, the kind of pattern language, if you like, a language for talking about things. That seems to really empower, that seems to have really empowered lots of organizations. Um, so you're not obsessed with, you know, the Spotify model, exactly what they say or whatever. There's lots of good things in there, but, but you know, it was a snapshot in time. And we're not obsessed about a two-pizza team like they have at Amazon. Um, yeah, well, for a start, the size of pizza varies between countries and the people's appetite varies. But anyway, apart from that, <laughs> you know, th- that it doesn't get down to the, it doesn't immediately talk about the, um, the, the kind of dynamics behind it. And so, um, so yeah, by coming with, with some language, which, which we worked quite hard on the language, we, we, we tried to make it as useful as possible. So we avoided the word product team for the streamlined team, because actually in, in some of the situations that we worked, uh, for example, in manufacturing, a product is a physical thing. Products these days, you know, physical products now have got embedded software and, you know, uh, connection to the cloud and, and everything. But still in manufacturing, the product is a physical thing. So you can't call it a product team because a product team is the team that will get disbanded in five years after that physical product is no longer being sold. Whereas what we want is a team that is going to own that, own the software aspect of that thing for an ongoing basis. So we were looking around for, that's an example of why we ended up using the word stream. We also wanted to, to emphasize the sense of flow. So that's where we ended up with, with the word stream, streamlined. 
and some of the other terminology as well. We were quite careful to um, to to avoid certain words uh, and things and not not give the wrong impression. Like complicated subsystem, for example, it's, a, it's kind of a horrid, horrible word in some respects. It's a bit of a mouthful, but we avoided the word complex because uh, if you look at um, the, the the language from uh, frameworks like Kinevin and, and other kind of uh, frameworks that deal with complex adaptive systems, the word complex has a very specific meaning, and the kind of stuff that we, the kind of things that people are building inside that kind of with 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 that kind of um, logic and the mathematics is not complex it's complicated in that in that terminology so we were quite careful to make sure that the terminology we use kind of works well with kind of um with complementary frameworks around the edge i like that you were clear on that because i have found that many people will use the words interchangeably and one day i think i watched um seven or eight years ago i think i watched a ted talk on complex versus complicated and they dove, they like went deep into the the differences, but I, I'm I'm gonna check real quick with you to make sure I remember it correctly. It was complex was more like a pattern emerging, like a fractal nature or maybe like a flower, right? And then the complicated was more disjointed and like less repeatable. Is that wrong? It may be. So in in the in the terminology from something like Kinevin then uh, complicated is still amenable to, to a kind of reductive analysis, but it needs, it needs more experience to do so, whereas complex uh, has uh, emergent uh, behavior coming from multiple independent actors. So complex is the one where if you've got some situation which is complex in, in that terminology, then you can't analyze it. You have, to, you have to kind of sense and respond to what's going on. So in that specific so for example a modern modern cloud-based software system of a, of a decent scale is going to be complex because there's, there's multiple independent actors and you can't predict all of the different interactions between them so that's why you end up needing techniques like chaos engineering and sre and things because because strange behavior appears in these kind of systems just because of the number of actors and, and the and the unpredictability whereas if you're building a image processing kernel then it's still really involved but it's entirely predictable in its behavior given a certain set of inputs it's entirely predictable and so that's why that, in that, that that's the example of why we that's why we chose um, complicated for that type of that that type of team complicated subsystem because they are working on something which is actually predictable it's just really kind of involved and needs lots of experience and awareness and things yeah, that was a way better explanation. <laughs> I love it. Who who did you mention that was? I want to write that down. Uh, Kinevin is the Kinevin. is the framework. It's um, it looks like. Uh, let me spell it out for you. It's a, it's actually a Welsh word. From it was invented by uh, Dave Stoden, who is who is Welsh. So Kinevin is C Y N E F I N. All right. Thank you for spelling that because I put a K there in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is good. So how did you like walk me through um, like a little bit about you personally? Like when did you first like start interacting with technology and you knew, hey, I kind of like this? I guess at any kind of interesting scale, probably around about uh, early 90s, I think, uh, when we got a PC at home. 
And so I was tinkering around, tinkering around on that, doing various bits and pieces. So kind of early internet dial-up internet access, like 28K modem or something, whatever it was at that time. And then I went off to a university to, to study um, computer science and cybernetics. And so that's a nice blend of, of, you know, programming, practical programming plus kind of uh, computer theory um, and also then building stuff. So building robots and um, learning about learning about systems, control systems effectively. And I think that was actually quite useful as a perspective. It wasn't so my, effectively my background isn't just around say programming in Java. It's I've got the kind of the, the, the cybernetic or control systems awareness as well, um, which is, is super useful. I mean, we bring in a little bit of that stuff into, into the team topologies book because for me, it's, it's, it's kind of embedded in how I, how I think about stuff in terms of feedback loops and, and so on. But it's it's clear for it's clear to me, having spoken to lots of people in in organisations, that they don't they're not even aware of the principles of fairly straightforward control systems. Like a central heating system is a control system, and there's a feedback loop in there, and there's a there's a lag and so on. Or a feed uh, a, a control system like um, like how a steam engine works, for example. How how why why steam engines were able to kind of power the industrial revolution because of, because of the kind of control system they had that was self-correcting this kind of thing there's some basic uh just some basic lack of awareness of, of how some of these things work and how therefore some people's mental model of an organization and what we're doing is very far from where it would be useful people just think oh we just need to deliver some software and forget about it rather than having an expectation that what we're delivering is probably wrong and therefore we need to sense for when it's wrong, feed that back into the, into the organization, correct what we're doing, improve it and, and, and move forward. It's a very different mentality kind of conceptually. Those, those two, those two, those two ways of thinking are very, very different. So yeah, and that, that was, that was super useful. And then I went on to do, various roles in, in different organizations, uh, did some network engineering. I then did some, I built some software. I wrote some software for uh, brain imaging machines, MRI brain scanners, and then some local government websites and then into financial services and, and other things. Um, and eventually ended up kind of doing sitting in the middle of the, of the IT organization, doing build and deployment, infrastructure automation, that kind of thing, uh, which gives you real insight into the kind of dynamics of software delivery. Uh, and yeah, the, the, the last few years I've been consulting and helping organizations with a combination of engineering practices, uh, both at the uh, software and software delivery side and at the kind of operations engineering side, telemetry and so on. Uh, and then increasingly helping organizations to think about the shape of their teams and the interactions uh, in a what's now become kind of a team topologies approach. Yeah, the way you were describing like the control systems and assuming it doesn't work and looping the feedback back in that that reminds me of like elon musk when i hear him talk about companies and business in general because he takes the approach that the business is not going to work and we're just going to reduce our probability of failure and increase our probability of success and i've heard a couple people talking like that and they all seem to be now that I'm connecting some dots right now, uh, they seem to be people that have experience in industrial or some sort of physical manufacturing. 
So you think some of the principle, some of the principles are coming from there? Could be, it could be, but, but that's also possibly because that's where these control principles were first sort of discovered. I mean, the, um, or first, we were first able to work on them and, 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 and evolve how those control systems work. I mean, th- these kind of systems are everywhere uh, in reality, but, uh, you know, in, in, in the atmosphere of planets, in, in, um, in parts of how the body works, arguably, and so on. But, but yeah, it's certainly from a business perspective, the people who have been to have done an MBA or like a business degree or have come through as a salesperson and, and now they're the head of, head of sales or marketing or whatever, that way of thinking of, of making sure we've got a, a rapid feedback loop from, from the kind of live system, if you like, from the live environment, rapid feedback loop so we can course correct. That's, that's kind of very alien to, to a lot of people who haven't come through a kind of um, engineering type engineering type background. You can see it with Elon Musk with the, with the rockets, the, the SpaceX rockets, like I think was it 10 years ago? I think, I think they've been going about 10 years or something, maybe longer. And the early rockets, they fell over, they exploded. And then they lifted one meter off the ground and then they exploded. And then, then they lifted 10 meters off the ground and then exploded. And everyone was like, ha, 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 look at that. They're so rubbish. But then they lifted 30 meters off the ground and didn't explode. And then, and so on and so on. And, and then they could settle back down on the launch pad. And so there's, there's this mentality of, we're not going to get it right first time. And if you start with that mentality, if you start with the mentality of, we are exploring the space rather than we're going to build, the, the, we're going to build it right first time. If you got to start with the, the, the mentality of we need to explore this space and learn, it sets you up for, in a very different way, in a, sets you up for success in this kind of space where we're exploring the technology and where we're exploring product and so on. It sets you up for success compared to assuming that we're going to get it right first time. I like that. You're a very smart person. You go by Matt or Matthew, by the way? M- Matthew. Okay. I want to make sure that we like do the intro correctly and yep. promote it all properly. So I... I, I, names are very important. I tried Matt for about six weeks and it didn't work. So no? It's Matt. Just, just too frustrating? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was, just didn't work. <laughs> so, you know, I'm curious. I'm curious. Do you consider yourself uh, an entrepreneur? Not particularly. Um, I guess, although there's people around me who, who would say definitely Matthew is, yeah. Um, I, I guess some of the stuff we're doing now is, is, is of that nature. Um, try to push the push the boundaries on 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 different things. Um, I guess what I've, a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is fairly entrepreneurial. We've got a few things uh, in progress right now, um, some relating to team topology, some around sort of related related things that are yeah something something like entrepreneurism. Something like I could that. guess. I hope you're building some sort of like SaaS app to help you manage team structures. That would be pretty cool. We're actually working, so we're not actually working directly on that. Um, if, if I had time, it would be great. We're actually working with a couple of really interesting um, partner organizations doing, doing some, some very similar things in this space. It's, it's, there's some really great, um, really great software available now that is, that is coming out at kind of just the right time, if you like, um, to, to help organizations get really good insights into the relationship between teams their interactions and the code that they're writing so it's, it's a very interesting space and the next few years i think it's going to be some really interesting stuff that comes out here really powerful um organizations that adopt tools like this are going to have a huge advantage yeah there was a couple that i've, that I've i don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about but there was like um 
and maybe Jake can help me type in there, but there was a company called like Pinpoint that's like helping developers uh, measure their work and work together. And there's there's just a, comp- a couple different uh, softwares out there that were doing some things that I'd never seen before until like the past year, year or two. I've not heard of Pinpoint. Pinpoint. But... And then uh, Get Clear is another one of them. Okay. And Get Prime is probably the most popular because they sold to one of the larger education companies mm-hmm. that does like online videos. But I think those three are like the main ones in that space. So the the two companies that we've been talking to, one is called Code Scene, um, mm-hmm. and it's written by uh, or led by someone called Adam Thornhill, who's written two books on the relationship between kind of code and, and humans or how you can actually use insights into version control history to gain additional insights into all sorts of things, including you can predict where bugs will occur by looking at your version control history, which is kind of cool because now you don't need to guess. You can just say well, bugs are pretty much likely to occur in this area here, but all sorts of other things too. You can, you can infer internal boundaries in the architecture from looking at just at the Git history. You can look at uh, sort of team relationships, all sorts of things like this. That's really, really interesting working on that at the moment with, uh, with a client in, uh, in North America. And there's another company based in Australia called, uh, called Teamform. They've just changed their name. They're called Teamform. They're, they're doing kind of uh, all sorts of things, but in, one of the things they offer is around helping organizations to, to as, assess the current relationship between multiple teams and therefore get a sense in which whether that those relationships are helpful towards the architecture we want to build or whether those relationships are actually likely to be working against the kind of architecture we want to build, thinking about Conway's law, that kind of thing. It's That's really, pretty interesting. It's really cool stuff coming out. Uh, it's yeah. early days, but it's some really, really interesting tool, tooling coming out. Yeah, there's some you know legitimate uses for these tools. Like I hear a lot of people at the large organizations trying to find like experts within the organization on specific topics. And my first thought was, why don't you just do code analysis and see what type of features people write, see what type of you know systems they have experience. And because the way that they do it without looking at code analysis is they'll have like an internal company profile and they'll put tags, you know, and whenever they update their tags uh, and that that's like one way to do it. But if I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, we need to find out who the smartest person in our company is with authentication. Like sh- show us that person that like there's no re- there's no technical reason why we wouldn't be able to do that with the with the the skills we have out there today. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there's going to be all kind of all kind of tooling in this space over the next few years, as uh, particularly and it'll it'll be accelerated with uh, with the remote first way of working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's companies that have just sold their offices and never never plan to go back or really downsized, and so actually having you don't have any any direct eye-to-eye visibility of, of, of the team. So it'll be derived from, you know, interactions in different online tools. Um, so in this space, the, this kind of tool will, there'll only be more and more of this kind of tool. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing up CodeSeam and Teamform. I'm going to check out, check them out. And by the way, I, ha- I have a enormous amount of respect for you for your ability um, to to grow your company beyond yourself, right? Because I see so many consultants out there um, that it's just like one or two people just doing it, and you've been able to like build a team and and grow it, and that's like one of the the hardest things to do. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate because I, I ran 
a, a company. Well, I was the technical director of a, of a soft, small software company in London for for about just over five years. So I had some early experience in in kind of the dynamics that, that are at play there. So building partner relationships, uh, doing all the um, kind of new business stuff with clients and so on. So that that was well, I, I, and also a lot of the work we did there was um, was for high profile brands. So I got I'm like in my DNA now is kind of like don't mess with the brand, don't mess with the brand, pixel perfect, all of this kind of stuff, which a lot of kind of software folks don't necessarily have unless they've been at the, at the you know, really at the front end of, of software development. So I had an eye for some of that kind of branding and, uh, and, and how things look as well. Yeah, I like your font. I like your, your logo and your design. Yeah. Yeah, no, was, that was good. So, um, so we've, we've got strong small but growing and strong um, partner relationships that's one of the things we're doing right now actually uh, partly because partly because we've been really successful uh, it's a nice kind of success to have where you have no time basically because you're, you're too busy working so one of the things we're doing now is building out our, our partner network and get, getting opportunities for for um you know partners to deliver some um some of the certainly some of the training probably some of the consulting and, and other offerings that we've got as well that's exciting. I think you'll do very well. Is there, we're, we're approaching our, uh, our, our hard stop time here. So is there anything else that we want to get out there? Any call to action? We'll put your information in the, in the show notes. People can reach out and buy the book and learn more. Yeah. So if you want to learn more, just go to teamtopologies.com. Uh, there's a whole set of information on there. We're, we're putting more kind of uh, background information, slides, videos, um, getting started guides. We've got a load of stuff on GitHub as well. So free templates, you know, send us a pull request. It's all well, technically, it's sort of like open source. It's Creative Commons uh, because at the moment, most of that stuff is uh, is text, not not code. But anyway, it's on GitHub. So just github.com slash team topologies. You'll find all that stuff there. We are working, we've, we're working on, on some new material as well. So if you just sign up to the newsletter and you, you, you'll, you'll find the details. Um, we have got training, plenty of it. It's all remote first and lots of different flavors of training uh, from a kind of quick introduction, two hours through to uh, a, a, sorry, a full day's worth of kind of platform focused uh, training. And we've also got a, um, a two day uh, course covering all the key concepts in, in Teams Bodies. Um, so if you're interested in any of that, just, just head to teamtopologies.com and uh, you'll find the contact details there. Oh, excellent. So they, if they want to do a course to go through these principles and these concepts and talk with you, it's like it's a remote course and they can go to your website. Yep. Cool. Yeah. And, and we've, the, the courses, the training used to be in person, but we've, we've obviously took the, the last few months to really reshape how we do things. And to be honest, I think the, the online training is actually now better than it used to be in person for various reasons. The tooling is really nice now. Um, so I th- the, the attendee experience consistently is good for people. They, they really appreciate how we've done the course, how we deliver the course and the kind of exercises and, and mix of things that we do in, in the sessions. So it seems to be good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, my friend. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. Talk soon, buddy. Thanks everyone. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear, discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.